you know, we're a literary organization, but in the course of the development of this panel, we wanted very much to broaden this to include many different forms of expression, art forms today. We hope, as I think you know, to publish proceedings of this series of panels. We've had uh, some remarkable people, some remarkable talks. And having welcomed you, I want to give you the chairman for this evening, Mr. Alan Hughes, who is years the criticism of the arts up to now, and I don't know what's been said, uh, but it may be that dance offers far greater problems and at least many different problems in regard to criticism or some kind of coverage of the field than other arts. And I think that <coughs> I will just tell you that when I was writing about dance, and even now, I have some notions uh, about the field and about writing about it that I may as well uh, reveal to you. First of all, I remember one session something like this up at the American Dance Festival in New London, Connecticut, seven or eight years ago, when with the people who were then my colleagues, uh, we were talking about the problem of writing about dance. And I made a statement that I thought was very simple and very obvious about what I did. And I said I felt that um, I was pretty much involved in, oh, something that might be called a sophisticated shopping service. In other words, I did not feel that what was written for daily newspapers was something that could really be called criticism very often, that you might call it reviewing, uh, but that it did not fill my requirements for criticism of an art. I think criticism happens when an art or some aspect of it is considered at leisure, certainly, and in some detail that the consideration involves much careful thinking and much careful writing and uh, usually quite a bit of space. My feeling was that newspapers didn't want this sort of thing and in fact couldn't use it. And I still feel that the person who writes for a daily newspaper 
and I make this distinction very clearly, cannot very often be writing what I would call criticism. Now, I think that reviewing is a perfectly valid occupation, and I think that it probably needs to be done. But I myself would not call it criticism. Therefore, perhaps I shouldn't be here at all. But I am, so <laughs> we'll just have to put up with it. Uh, now, fortunately, the people who are here today who are going to uh, talk to you and give you their views are uh, well differentiated in the field, and they're not any of them involved at the present moment with daily newspapers, so that you will get other ideas about this. But I think there are some other things we could think about uh, just beside the problems of the daily newspaper. Uh, we could also perhaps think about um, the idea as expressed by Gertrude Stein when she said poets don't need criticism, all they need is praise, uh, about the uses of criticism, uh, about the public toward which criticism or reviewing is directed. And um, since we could think about those things, I'll tell you what I think about it. When I write now about music, and when I wrote about dance, I never felt that I was writing anything directed to the performers, or the choreographers, or the company managers, or whatever. My idea always was that I was writing a kind of description and an impression of something that had happened, and that I was writing that for the sake of the people who were not there. I have never really understood why anyone who goes to a performance is so intent upon reading what was said about it. I mean, if you were there, you know, and you don't have any reason to read what somebody else says about it, particularly if it's reviewing. If it is really serious criticism, maybe. Uh, but otherwise, there's it's a waste of time so far as I think about it. And above all, I would say, as I've said many times, that I think a performer or a choreographer or a creator or an impresario reads reviews at his own hazard, you might say, because they're not intended for him in the first place. They are not intended to teach. And I would like to say here that I think even if a person who happens to be writing criticism or reviews even if he may be a teacher in another part of his life, that when he is writing, his job is not to teach. I think it's very presumptuous to try to teach experts in their field in public, even if you are qualified to. And generally speaking, I think that critics and reviewers are not qualified to teach professionals in the arts. So I would say then that to my way of thinking, None of what is written, especially in um, journals that get put aside pretty quickly, um, none of that is ever intended for the performer himself. I certainly do know reviewers and critics who will say, oh, I really let him have it, or something like that. Well, I never felt that way, and um, I think it's a very arrogant notion, and um, I think that in any case it is very misplaced. Now, with that, I think that I will simply introduce the panel members who are going to speak for 10 minutes.
You heard that ten minutes each. And then we're going to talk in general. I will get out my watch. And uh, by some very astute analysis, I learned that if we went alphabetically, we could start with the lady, and that appeals to my old-fashioned uh, <laughs> ideas about the way things should go, women's lib notwithstanding. And therefore, we are going to begin with C, which stands for Cohen, and that stands for Selma Jean Cohen, who has done her time on a daily paper, but has been relieved from that now, and has a sort of a one-woman monopoly on what is about the closest thing to dance scholarship that we have in this country. I don't think Selma Jean really likes the idea of its being a one-woman monopoly because she cares too much about dance for that. But the fact is that she is the publisher and the everything of dance perspectives, which is um, sort of quarterly, I think. Yes? That, mm -hmm. that publishes materials that are of enormous value to the documentation of dance and I would say that from time to time dance perspectives has, in fact often it has, what I would call criticism. And the fact that dance perspectives exists, that these quarterlies are appearing, that contain solid, valuable information and thinking is due nowadays entirely to Selma Jean Cohen. I mentioned that she had uh, had journalism in her past and it was with the paper for which I now work. So she knows both sides of the question. Selma Jean has written reviews and she has been involved also with criticism. Selma Jean Cohen. Uh, thank you for the nice words about the magazine. I sometimes like to say that, well, whatever else there is about it, you must admit that Dance Perspectives is unique. <laughs> uh, now, I don't do criticism anymore, and very happily I don't. It just simply is a matter that I think, uh, temperamentally, I am not suited to that kind of work and I feel I can serve dance in other ways, but I am very much involved with it, which I will get to at the end of my 10 minutes uh, for a very particular reason. I'm very concerned about the state of criticism, particularly in this country, and the feeling that I think many of us have that it has lagged behind the progress of the art itself. And criticism, I do feel, should be creating a climate of ideas in which an art can flourish. Sure, here. <laughs> and dance has forged ahead, particularly in, oh, I, I'd rather not say the number of years, but within the years I've been in New York, with all kinds of wonderful, wonderful new ideas and experiments that have worked and exciting things going on. And generally speaking, our critics have not opened up that much. And the problem is, why hasn't dance criticism achieved the same kind of prestige in the critical field that dance is achieving in the arts field. I think there are signs of its coming 
to this. It's growing up, it's developing, but it's not there yet. And I would like to mention just a couple of causes uh, for this, at least I think <coughs> there are. First of all, I think it's been the fault of the people doing the criticism, in that the people in the dance world have had what I think of as our stepchild complex. We are the stepchild of the arts. Nobody thinks of us as an art. Nobody takes us seriously. When we get into the colleges, we're in the Department of Physical Education. Uh, we're coming out of it now, you know. We're getting into the colleges of fine arts. But uh, we've tended to cry a good deal about this and to become extremely defensive. And one result this has had is that some critics tend to feel it's so wonderful to have dance on the stage at all. Whatever it is, we've got to love it. We've got to say it's great. We've got to tell people to come, that it's beautiful, that it's wonderful, even if it's incompetent. It's been too bland an approach, too much fan, too much enthusiasm, as opposed to a discriminating eye. And I feel this has had uh, some bad results. For example, urging an audience to come to this wonderful dance event, and they get there, and frankly, it's lousy, and they're bored. And they will say, well, if this is good dance, I'm going to go to the opera, I'm going to go to the theater. I've had it, I don't want this. Instead of being a little more honest about it and realizing that saying that a particular performance may not be competent is not the same as saying that the art is not worthwhile. Though I do want to get back to the whole idea of evaluation in criticism because this isn't, to me, the main thing at all. Uh, it's had a very bad effect in terms of our relationships with critics in the other arts who do take things seriously and who are discriminating and who have not thought too much of some dance critics in the past. It's certainly, I feel, not good for the art to take this attitude of, I just love everything that's dance, and super enthusiasm that does not really see what is happening. And after all, if you're enthusiastic about everything, when something really great comes along, it's like the boy who, called, who cried wolf. And then your really great thing doesn't get the kind of praise that it should, because you've already given that to everybody else. There is another problem, and this, I think, in the nature of the art itself. Edwin Denby has, I think, brought this out very beautifully when he said that dance won't stand still long enough to be dissected. He finds this very good. It hasn't been theorized about nearly as much as the other arts. It's a lot harder to do. You know, you can always look at the score, can't you? You can go back and see the painting again. You can read the novel again. But you can't say to the dancers after the performance, would you please go through that whole uh, evening all over again for me? Or would you please do that pas de deux again? I didn't quite catch the whole thing. 
maybe someday when films are available so you have this little tape in your home and you can just turn it on. Now it won't stand still. This is a great challenge to the critic. It makes his job terribly, terribly difficult. And this has definitely been a problem for us. I think it's also one of the exciting challenges for us. But we, I do somehow agree to some extent with Edwin Denby that it's been a blessing in a way that we haven't gotten too theoretically involved. It hasn't stood still, so we haven't been able to dissect it as much as some critics of literature or painting or music can go into this very minute detail and talking about a number of concepts that we just haven't gotten around to dealing with. It's had another great advantage, I think, in terms of the fact that we have no rigid theories established. Very few people have proposed theories about dance at all. And consequently, there's the possibility of being much more open as a critic to new ideas, to new concepts, because you're not so tied down with what you learned in school, because we haven't had any schools anyway. Of course, I came to this applying all kinds of Aristotelian stuff I learned at the University of Chicago, and it had to have a beginning, middle, and an end, and then I came across Merce Cunningham, and uh, I had a problem. And uh, I learned to throw Aristotle out the window when necessary. So this can have very great advantages. There are also some disadvantages, and that is that if you have no theory, you have no concepts, you can be pretty sloppy, pretty impressionistic. You know, I saw this and the kind of thing, I don't know much about it, but I know what I like, and I liked her arabesque. I know the name arabesque, and that was pretty, and this was nice, and that was too noisy. Uh, this is a possible danger of not having this background. I do tend to like very much a statement that Peter Brook made in The Empty Space, if I may borrow from a theater critic, when he said that the critic should have a concept, the idea of what theater should be, and then, the contrary of that, be bold enough to let to put that concept in jeopardy every time he goes to a performance. Which means that you have some standards, but you're not going to impose upon a work. You're going to be open enough to see when a new artist is working from another kind of principle. And if it does something for you, if you find it illuminating for you, to be able to open up enough to embrace that. I think this, to me, is the essence of it. We have now, and Deborah Jowett, I'm sure, will talk more about this, some young people coming up who are very concerned with the particular problems of dance in relation to the critic. And the idea of describing movement and this is not just a matter of for the shopping person. You say it's good or bad, go to see it or don't go to see it. But to be able to tell an audience 
what it is like. And then let him make up his mind. But to give him a really clear idea of the most important thing in the performance, which is the quality of the movement, the actual dance. This is one thing that we're trying to get at. And I said I was going to explain very briefly, yes? Am I 10 minutes almost up? Just about. All right. Uh, You're why, now, why I'm still interested in criticism is that uh, we have started, as of last summer, a course in dance criticism that has been supported by the National Endowment for the Arts. And this is for young journalists to get work in the particular problems of dance. We started it last summer. Miss Jowett was there with me. And I think we began to get somewhere, started anyway. One of our students, we had only five, uh, has just become, as of this fall, the dance critic of the Boston Herald. I'm very, very proud of her. And this is the kind of thing that I think we can do, not giving them rules, but letting them see lots of dance. They saw, in the three weeks, they saw 14 performances. And that's the way I think we're going to do it. And so this is the kind of thing I feel we need to work on. Very good. And next, in alphabetical order, we have a man who, so far as I know, has never wasted his time um, saying what was good or bad about anybody else. Uh, nor on shopping services, nor anything. May I interrupt you? Yes. <laughs> Could you uh, change order and let Deborah do next and, and do it by sexes and uh, so forth so it doesn't mix this up too much? Because I think maybe there would be a, one kind of continuity if Deborah spoke next. All right, only for reasons of gallantry. All right. <laughs> Not continuity. <laughs> the gentleman passes. So we go on to Jay, and the gentleman who passed, of course, was Eric Hawkins. We go on to Jay and Deborah Jowett, who um, works both sides of the fence, so to speak, in that she dances, she choreographs, and uh, more specifically, I think uh, the reason she's here today is that she writes about dance for the Village Voice. Uh, I think, since I have said that she does everything, that that's quite enough introduction for Deborah Jowett. Yes. Um, I was listening to Selma Jean and thinking, my God, she's taking my points one by one. <laughs> um, I think the thing that has interested me most about dance criticism that does excite me is the fact that it is so ephemeral, the art is so ephemeral, for this reason. Uh, important critics and scholars, I think, have tended to take this quality of dance as a reason to look down on it, to consider it unserious and minor. It was here last night, it's gone tomorrow. Um, and the public is a little confused, has been. They can't, as Selma Jean pointed out, take it home with them. It can't be hung on their walls. You can't check it out of a library. You can't, even if you're a student, uh, take a score home with you or a script and try to reconstruct the original. Now we have 
systems of notation, but they're extremely cumbersome, therefore, especially trained people to read and produce. And film, as we know, is expensive, and the aesthetics of film often impose themselves on the aesthetics of dance in a way that is not to their mutual advantage. So I think because of this, the critic writing about dance has a responsibility. This may sound perhaps pompous, but I think some of the burden of history rests on the critic because I look back so many times now, trying to look back through critics whom I admire, trying to find out what the young Martha Graham really moved like and how really how little they tell me about that. They tell me what her dancers were about. They tell me how striking the first moment was with the set. They tell me what music was used, and they praise it lavishly, and they give me some hint. But what I really want to know is, how did she move? What, what was the form of the dance as a whole? What was, the, what was the shape of the movement and the dynamics? And you wander through a maze of, of terribly interesting writing and well-meaning criticism, and you can't find out the one thing you want to know. And I think, although uh, Selma Jean mentioned describing movement, and one of our most prominent critics, Clive Barnes, has said he does not think it is the critic's business to describe movement. And I understand the problems, the adjectives, the terrible repetitions that can come out when you try to talk about movement, but I think it's our responsibility to try because if dance isn't about movement, what is it about? Um, in the 20th century, dance criticism has been handled by very few drama critics, uh, music critics, theater critics, sports writers, and some of them have done marvelous jobs and been instantly converted to dance. Others have imposed on dance their own aesthetic. Martha Graham was fascinating to them because of the way she treated plot and drama. And we have been burdened ever since with explications of dances that needed none. I have read a rather prominent drama critic sent to cover Dance of Merce Cunningham's write a, just a marvelous story about a boy meeting a girl and another man coming in and taking the girl away from him. And um, <laughs> the music critics sometimes uh, have applied their particular aesthetic, uh, their particular terms of crescendo and decrescendo and repetition, so choreographers, by the way, to dance. And the sports writers just go wild. Uh, but we, Selma Jean and I were both in Milwaukee uh, and there was a newspaper man from a local paper who was a music critic turned dance critic and very well thought of and a very nice man. But he said, it's fascinating to think. We're all talking about how dance criticism can be bettered. And I think of how little was expected of it because he said, I started covering dance because every Saturday night or so, somebody would come into the city room waving a pair of tickets and say, okay, who wants to go see the high kickers tonight? <laughs> and he raised his hand, and that's how he became a dance critic. <laughs> you know, 
So I sort of disagree with Alan Hughes about, I, I do think that something could be done to raise the level of daily reviewing. And I wish it would be done. It's, it's certainly true that daily papers don't have the opportunity to go into anything in detail the way those of us who work for weeklies do. Uh, but they could be dance people, they could be trained. If the papers, if the editors, and the public, and the critic didn't somehow all combine to turn him into this weather vane you speak of, I'm still, I've only been writing criticism since 1967, and I'm still appallingly idealistic about it, and uh, feel every failure, mostly my own, very strongly. And I'm furious that the American public needs to be told what it should like. I'm furious that an editor wants a critic to tell them that, and I'm furious that critics comply with those regulations, because no matter how little space you have, if you have to devote one-fourth of it to saying where the performance took place in full, and what time, and who participated, and one-fourth uh, giving your opinions and saying, um, it's good, run, see it, it's bad, stay away. I kind of think that this spoon-feeding of people should stop. I understand, I'm perfectly sympathetic to the people who don't want to spend $50 for a pair of tickets to a Broadway show without some kind of assurance that it's, it's all right. <laughs> but dance is remarkably inexpensive. I don't know what they're selling the tickets for at Anta now or at City Center, but... You want to tell when we're there? That would be a wonderful time. Yeah. How much the tickets are? What night? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, it's six See, I think it's something uh, like five or six ninety-five top. Obviously, and none of us buy our tickets. <laughs> <laughs> and you can go to very interesting dance performances for two fifty. You know, and I think with that kind of thing, uh, the public you know, could afford to go. So that's my particular, I'm, I'm very opposed for myself. I'm much, I do give opinions. I think it's much more important, speaking purely personally, for the critic to try to come to terms with what happened in dance. What was the quality of the movement? What was the form of the piece? and what the particular aesthetics of dance require, rather than to be any kind of arbiter of taste or to be any kind of teacher, as Mr. Hughes pointed out. I think uh, those sort of knuckle-wrapping critics are just deplorable. You know, Mr. So-and-so would have done better to avoid the such-and-such -and, -such, uh, and try the such-and-such, -such, especially considering his failure as evidence last year when I told him he shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, that becomes eventually very boring to read, and it comes back to what, what are you there for? And I think, at least I want to be there, to serve the art and to inform the public. We keep quoting Edwin Denby, but he did say an awful lot of remarkable things, and I think uh, he, he said that if somebody was at a performance, 
he hoped that something that he said, and this would contradict you, might illumine or give that person new insights into the performance. No, that didn't contradict what Alan said. Well, he said if you were there, you were there and you'd seen it. You didn't need a no, critic. These are on two different levels, Deborah. Right. And for the person who hadn't been there, he hoped to give him some sort of experience of what had happened. And to me, that is the most important thing. And that's all I have to say. If I'm allowed another turn later, I will have to amplify a little bit of what I said. Meanwhile, the gentleman still waits, and the gentleman is Eric Hawkins, who is a choreographer and dancer, and who uh, travels around quite a bit, uh, exhibiting both aspects of his art. And if I may uh, be permitted a bit of editorial opinion, I would say that I think it would be fair to describe Barry Calkins as a thinking man's choreographer. And therefore, he should have uh, some rather good thoughts for all of us thinking people. <laughs> well, I'm not so sure. The trouble is that uh, I have to think about myself most of the time. <laughs> And so I'm not sure really why I should be here in one way, in that uh, for me to have any kind of objectivity of a sort uh, would be asking too much. Uh, all I can do is spill the beans from some of my own uh, observations and likings and needs. Uh, but before I, one thing that did come to my mind, and for fear I shouldn't get to it, I would want to say that one of the, uh, I feel one of the important uh, starts toward making a climate was a book that Selma Jean wrote the introduction to and first place edited and got out. Uh, that was doing some of this groundwork whereby more people, people like you, would have available certain ideas, let's call them ideas, attitudes, some just plain information uh, about what goes inside uh, of a dancer's head, a choreographer's head, and it's called Seven Statements of Belief. And uh, so I throw it out to you because it's still is in some of the bookshops down here. I hope it's selling pretty well. Paperback at yeah. $1.95. Yeah. Yeah. And so I know, I know it's still down here in one bookshop here on 6th Avenue. And uh, I've always been very grateful to it, and I was always very pleased that Selma Jean asked me to write an article uh, about it. Because, so sure, there's one level to be a modern artist, you do have to think. There are too many problems if you don't. Otherwise, you're caught up in a maelstrom like a chip in a drain. And you may be just repeating cliches. Uh, I think it's impossible for the contemporary artist not to think. There are too many possibilities open. Uh, it's been broken absolutely wide open. And so, either you are thinking clearly and thinking to the hilt of what your own sensibilities can arrive at, or you maybe just repeat cliches, or you're just plain brainwashed. 
by some fashionable notion. And so I throw this out to you. You could be on the lookout. It's the very fact that you folks are here means that you're interested on some level. And, and Selma Jean's introduction is a brilliant piece of writing. I wouldn't call, I wouldn't call it criticism, but it's uh, some of the groundwork of bringing ideas out so that, look, all of us have to learn about something at some time or other. Uh, the first time we, we read something, uh, we're going to pick up our information and, and tie it in with what we observe. So I just throw that out to you for fear I should forget it. I guess um, uh, Alan's saying that in one way, uh, I, I take it as a compliment. Because the way I started out, I knew that if I was going to be a dancer, I wanted to see what I could find out. And the idea of just going along with what had been done and kind of doing it nicely, uh, well, I knew that wasn't going to challenge me as a man. And I can assure you that to be a dancer and to grow up to be a man is not an easy thing. And it wasn't when I started. I didn't even tell my mother and father I was dancing for two years after I uh, started. I was so insecure at being an artist in the first place and expecting any kind of understanding that well, they didn't know what it was to be, a, to be a dancer. And I've seen that change a great deal. But I still have nice young men and girls too come and say, ah, oh, but our family say we've got to, you better get that degree. And so I see many kids absolutely thrown by this uh, lack of perspective on on the general people's part, including parents, that somebody can go into a legitimate art, and sure, they may fail, but that they would go into it, and perhaps um, uh, they could give up a, a college business. I guess the place where, where anything that you would call criticism, and the reason I, I felt sometimes you folks were not quite, or when you were spoke about, uh, I felt that you were maybe not quite uh, um, uh, when you said you disagree with Alan, I don't think you were disagreeing with Alan at all. Uh, he, I think you were thinking in terms of one kind of, of current journalistic reviewing, and I think he was really thinking of a longer leisurely. That was the exact word, the leisurely going into uh, ideas about dances and art. I suspect that the place where I've been most grateful to anybody who's ever written about anything that I've tried to do. And this is where I think uh, maybe is our hope that more people who would be writing would take it so seriously that they would have a very large philosophical point of view. The problem today is to be caught in a any of fashion, of all kinds of new weird. I don't know what the rest of you feel this way, but I do. Uh, when I first came to New York and started to uh, be a dancer and study, I have a strong feeling of an extraordinary <laughs> buildup of artistic power in America. And I know some artists in very different fields, not only in dancing, who are very discouraged. They have had such charlatanism 
such fashionable fashion mongering in the arts that they are lost. And, uh, uh, and one great aspect is, uh, is of, of uh, composers. I know some composers who have never fulfilled their potential because a lot of charlatans, from my point of view, have taken this easy way out of destroying really one kind of climate. I guess the thing that I would love most, both for myself and for anybody else, would be, and that's why Selma Jean's book, I think, was very important. I see the evidences of it with young kids who've seen it and so forth already. Is that there could be a climate of really critical writing. So I'm not talking about uh, the, the reporting so much of particular performances. And so that's why the very theme of this meeting, presumably, has a little ambiguity in, in it, you see. And so that's what Alan started to say, was what is the, the reporting, so to speak, of a particular performance and the criticism uh, on a larger leisurely scale of the art? I guess the thing that, the distinction that has made me most sad, that has been lost from the time I first had a vision of how I wanted to start out, was the dance could be a damn serious art. And I still to this day, for all of the fact that we like theater, I still go along in my deepest heart with something that Isadora Duncan says is one of, in one of her essays. The first book of dancing that I ever saw was called The Art of the Dance. And some of my students have told me just lately, they've never seen it, because I won't ordinarily end my copy out in case somebody didn't uh, return it. Just being, uh, just being reissued. Just being reissued, yes. One of the sentences she says in there, and I thoroughly agree with it, is unless dance is religious, it is mere merchandise. And folks, that's what I still think. I teach hundreds and thousands of young kids in my studio right down Fifth Avenue there, number 78. And when we're touring around in the colleges, because most of our dates are in colleges, the colleges have money for concert series. And commercial people won't do it anymore. When I teach as many kids as I do, I see that there's a lack of leadership. There's a lack of leadership in all the arts. And so what the most beautiful thing that I think could happen is that people could write. And it has to be in the word. We all learn from the word. We, 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 we need that. Uh, in, in every aspect of our spiritual or artistic education, we have to see it through words in some way. There's some things that you just have to put into words, if you can handle them in thought at all. They can't stay just on the intuitive level. It doesn't substitute for the intuitive physical level, but it, it has to be there. Is that the dancing would really be treated not as entertainment, but as a, as a true art. Uh, and so when I say a true art, we are in trouble today. I went up to a lecture of Robert Motherwell at the, at the Metropolitan Museum about a year ago. Uh, it was when the 30 years of American painting was up there. 
and he did my heart good. He said, as the ordinary person going up into that uh, gallery, those galleries, would really be quite perplexed to be able to have an attitude, say if you were comparatively uninitiated, have quite a problem to go up and see what, how to respond. Not even how to think, how to respond. And so all I'm proposing that the loveliest thing that could happen is something called criticism for dance today would tie in with something he said there. He said, first, if you go up there, you'll see high art. And then you'll see pop art. And then you'll see anti-art. And then you'll see non-art. No wonder we're in trouble. And I guess the nicest thing that could happen if there could be some people who would write who would really challenge our society to transcend the idea of fashion and a very funny, erroneous notion of the new. We are in trouble from the idea of novelty today. I saw, uh, we did a performance of a college in New York uh, just about two weeks ago, Cuca College, and a dance teacher came from a neighboring university. And she just talked to me about the reaction of a concert, a dance concert that had been up there. She said, I don't think our concert committee will have a dance concert on this campus for years. It had, it had upset everybody so much in the sense that there, was, there were no standards of excellence that they could apply. There is one way that the art will never change. There are certain standards of skill, of sheer craft, that I don't think you can say that any painting today is any better than some of the cave paintings in you know, prehistoric times. There is one level that the art cannot change. And so one of the great problems that we have today, I have a feeling, is that we're throwing out many, many values uh, by a kind of letting go into so much experimentation that now it's very difficult to have a standard of even decent training for students, as though anybody could go out and horseback ride or dive just out of self-expression. And so for a climate, a philosophical climate of some eternal values to be given, now Nobody has tried in one way, in one way, more than I have, not to do something that I had seen before. But I know at the, the next minute that I say that, there is only the only, the, the original sense of correct human movement where any one dancer learns to obey nature so deeply that his movement is always right. Uh, and I have to say this, it's right not out of any willfulness, but simply so deeply obeying nature. And that is a kind of an idea that has not come, has not come into our mainstream very fully. And it does, that will prevent all kinds of eccentricities and uh, self-indulgences. But carrying that on, 
there is something else where I think that for each generation there needs Well, there are people who do, in one sense, I'm not talking about teaching about an individual work, but do show new generations of kids as they come along some of the glorious possibilities there are in the art. And when those are kind of ignored too much, then with all of the freedom that is current in all of our other activities in a way, uh, a kind of standard of excellence is torn down. So when people uh, a few years ago used to say that I was avant-garde, I soon began to say, oh no, I want to go to heaven, but not with those guys. Uh, because when he was tearing down standards that I as a grown-up man knew were standards of maturity, then I, if that's what the avant-garde means, then no. There are certain spiritual and philosophical and aesthetic ideas that I think are eternal. And so if you look at something Egyptian or Chinese or whatever in any of the arts, you see those standards of excellence. And so that leads me to say just one last thing. Not only thinking of the dancing as serious, and in the deepest sense of the word religious. Because if it isn't religious, it simply is not good enough to occupy our attention. Oh sure, we all like entertainment of a kind. But to confuse that or to let that substitute for something that's where, where the dance as a theater art and as ex experience would be a really rich thing for us in our inner life, that would be a pity. There is one thing that I feel is a confusion in the common attitude of people toward dancing. And I had occasion to a very bright young man. He's a Harvard boy, he came, and he came here from San Francisco just a few weeks ago, and he's a very sensitive boy. But I had occasion, he wanted me to talk to him, so I talked to him, and I said this. I said, I see you're very poetic. He's sensitive, he's spiritually sensitive. But I said, you just listen to me carefully and see if you can see that I might have a point. And then if I'm wrong, forget it. I'm not sure whether you really 
understand the aesthetic dimension. Uh, I guess the place where, for example, I myself would like to have another kind of appreciation written down, just so that maybe more of the young kids as they saw the performances would be a little bit alerted, is something that I call the aesthetic dimension. It's using the dance art not for the psychology, not how the dancer affects the audience on a psychological level. And that's why we are with all of our confrontations and all that kind of thing. There is something, and I see it in all of the arts from all over the world, whether it's a Chinese, uh, an Eskimo print done today, or whether it's something uh, Greek vase, there is something called an aesthetic dimension of a very high intensity. And I guess my, really, my life has been hoping that that could be brought into the art. When I first saw Martha Graham's Frontier, or Primitive Mysteries, this is while I was still at college, I knew I had seen something aesthetically of great power, and it had nothing to do with psychology. It was an aesthetic dimension in the actual materials of the art. And I guess the, the help of people who could write and try to transmit some of these ideas that I have said, they're serious ideas, that they could be transmitted so that more people uh, were a little bit alerted to them when they came and sat in the performance, I think it would encourage a lot of kids to hang, hang on to their intuitions and not be caught into trying to be, let's say, fashionable and stay into a current. And somewhere, I guess, only when an art has just enough people wanting it, both on the artist side and the audience side, wanting it with that high intensity, are you going to have a golden age? Well, whether we've missed it yet, I don't know. But those are some of my thoughts about what I try to do, and where, in terms of criticism, the more help, the merrier. Well, it seems to me that we have um, we have decided, say, that uh, dance criticism and dance journalism uh, both have a way to go before they satisfy probably anybody here. Uh, and I think that's uh, probably incredible. Uh The things that have been mentioned up to now are, say, the elusiveness of the art. Uh, the fact that a performance is danced and it's gone, you can't, you can't refer to it. Uh, we have uh, this aesthetic dimension I think is very important because as an observer of the arts uh, and as one of a body of concerned observers of the arts uh, I'm aware of the fact that the arts are changing so radically that for those of us past 30 uh, it involved almost total re-education to uh, try to get at all at what is happening. 
if I may be forgiven for making a personal reference. Uh, I would mention that many years ago, at the outset of my time of writing about Dance for the Times, I went to Judson Church on a July evening, and uh, I saw some performances given by members of the Judson Theater. And I wrote about them, and I didn't understand anything that was going on uh, at all, but it kind of intrigued me, and so I wrote a little piece in the paper like this. And now it turns out that, something I never knew, that that particular piece apparently gave the people who were involved the idea of doing some more of it. And uh, so that, am I wrong about that? Yeah. Well, anyway, I didn't, I didn't know what was going on, and I think I expressed that in, in this piece in the paper, and I subsequently went back to more of their performances. In any case, these people at the Judson Dance Theater did uh, represent a new installment of the avant-garde, and uh, I saw down there many things that have now become commonplace in the arts, such as uh, mixed media. Uh, I think that um, some of the very first people to be involved in mixed media, like it or not, whether you do or not, it's here, were the people of Judson Church. Now, I bring this up because of what, what Mr. Hawkins says about the aesthetic dimension. My assumption is, and I think that those of us who are paid observers, our assumption must be in some cases that the aesthetic dimension may be there even if it's imperceptible to us. And I think that this, this sometimes happens uh, with any art, that if it's, or anything, whatever it is, that if it's new enough, the aesthetic dimension or the whatever dimension is not necessarily perceptible at the moment. Now, of course, while one is trying to wade through all this, he is exposed to a great deal of stuff that has no aesthetic dimension at all, and he hopes after much seeing to, to find out what it is. Mr. Hawkins is slightly pessimistic. He feels that the aesthetic dimension, I think, is really vastly disappearing. I'm a bit more optimistic myself. But this is a problem we face, and I merely bring it up, that in all of the arts that I know, what we once took as fact it simply isn't anymore. I mean, facts of form, facts of this and that and everything else, they're simply changed. But if so many people are changing, you know, you've got to take it seriously somehow, at least from my point of view in reporting on it. A critic who can choose his material doesn't have to. In journalism, we have to, I think. Now, um, that's... Uh, oh, I thought of something as an illustration for that. Once, when I was a student, I was reading about Margaret Fuller, who was a writer in the 19th century. Margaret Fuller was very much an individualist, and um, I read, I think, that Emerson said to Hawthorne or somebody, uh, Margaret Fuller accepts the universe, because Margaret Fuller didn't accept very much. But anyway, he said, Margaret Fuller accepts the universe, and the other one said, Gad, she'd better. <laughs> and uh, it's Carlyle. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, I feel, you know, even if some of the avant-garde arts nowadays appear to have no aesthetic dimension whatsoever, I think we've got to accept them some way because they're here. Uh, now, having said that, uh, could we ask if any of you have any questions?
Objectivity of the critic, uh, which of course is impossible. Uh, but there is a point at which you have to try to keep some of your background in abeyance. This is very, very difficult to do. Because, for instance, the first dance performance I ever saw, I was 13, and it was Lacille Feed by the Ballet Russe and I was up in the top gallery of the Auditorium Theater in Chicago, and the curtain went up on this moonlit scene and the white dresses, and that was it. It changed my life. It set the direction of my life. And I carry some of that 13-year-old with me. I can't help it, as I carry some of Aristotle with me, because it's part of me. But I think it's my job insofar as possible to keep in abeyance those things that are irrelevant in my background to this particular occasion, to try to be open enough that I can be affected. If I'm not, I can't help it. I just can't help it. I do everything I can to try to the, well, I think the, the, the audience has to be moved in some way. And I don't mean it necessarily emotionally. It can be a kind of kinesthetic exhilaration. A response to the aesthetic dimension. response to the aesthetic dimension. There are things that can interfere with it that you try to throw out. And these have to do with the kind of thing I was talking about, the rigidity of uh, certain things in your background, the kind of things that Deborah spoke about, of bringing and the, the values of another discipline to bear, or even for that matter, historic values of this discipline that are not relevant to this particular work. It's hard to do. And you're always going to, but in the end, I think it's got to be a subjective reaction that comes across. Well, I just was going to, have you ever read any of the early criticism of Graham? I haven't, but I have a feeling. Well, yeah, because it's quite fascinating. And it, I was thinking of what Eric said about critics applying aesthetic standards or attempting to, to somehow keep things on a high level. And I think that perhaps we're afraid we want so much to be open, as Elma Jean said, to the new, and I think it's very important to report all these things that are happening because when I think of what 
very intelligent, very sensitive people did say about Graham. Um, there were some extremely perceptive people like Stark Young and who wrote about her very well. Yes, John Martin. But there were people, and there were even people, eminent critics in England when she went there in the 50s, who could see only ugliness, only strain, and to them the earthbound quality of her movement was a denial. It, they, they couldn't see that you could be in the air or on the earth. To them, dance was upward. And because she was on the floor all the time, they thought, you know, and people tend to make that kind of rude generalization. Ah, oh, she spent the whole time falling or rolling. Uh, they didn't see at all. And I think that it's important for us to remember that when we go see something new, eventually we may be able to say, this is definitely the bathwater and I'm throwing it out. But for now, there might be that baby there, and we may not know it, and I think we damn well owe it to everybody to be careful for a while. That wonderful remark about it, that ugly woman who moves in spasms and jerks. <laughs> I must say that I think that the new in the arts always poses problems, and that, that if critics and even reviewers, God help us on occasion, can help, that's fine. I mean, if, if we can try to point to what it is that is intriguing, then, then I think that this is, this is a function, actually, that even in our sophisticated shopping service that we can maybe play. And certainly, I would say this is what critics ought to be able to do, to try to find, you know, to get through this maze of the new. We're as afraid of it as anybody else, I think. I mean, we're as affected by it. Um, but you see, See, if Martha Graham had taken the word of, of so many of her, the people who wrote about her in the early days, she would have folded up and gone home. Well, uh, it's so much easier to <coughs> apply standards that you know, to have rules. Uh, I get this so much in teaching, the students want rules. And that's much more comfortable to have them. And then you say, oh yes, I look for unity, and I look for this, and I look for that. But that closes you in. That limits you too much. I don't like rules. Uh, I always, I had two experiences in my life that slightly, uh, I think, is, are applicable to this one was that when I was in college, I did most of my work in Greek civilization. And that meant reading the texts, reading the history, reading the things. And while I got into it by sheer accident, it was a damn good beginning to be an artist because it brought me into some of the fundamental ideas of Western civilization right on down and some acquaintance and so forth. One was seeing the deterioration of Athens within 30 years. You just read Thucydides. The other was the first study I had was, was a German dancer who I happened to see when I was uh, on, uh, on a vacation here in New York. Harold Kreuzberg, I say German dancer because uh, he uh, I could identify slightly with and then I did study with him. And Ivan Georgi, and maybe some of you might remember when they were very popular in, in America. 
and I had never heard of such a thing as dancing, and I happened to go by the theater and got a ticket for that night and went. It came out first intermission, and for the first time in my life, I knew what I wanted to do. And so I went over and studied with him in Salzburg. I saw Hitler one day. We went up to Berchtesgaden. Germany was throwing pamphlets over Austria. I happened to visit a German boy, went out onto a, to the river mine for a picnic, and I have never felt anything with so full of malaise in my life. At the end of the summer, I happened to go to Munich, a bicycle, marvelous little romantic journey from Salzburg to Munich to see a performance at Kreuzberg, and I was awakened at dawn by sounds in the street. They were stormtroopers marching on cobblestones, and I began to cry. That has been one of the most profound in the light of history. I knew something was wrong. I think, you see, when it comes to applying standards, I think we human beings do know certain things. They are eternal. And I think when some of those values, just as decent, bright, alert human beings that are not brainwashed, when we react to certain things, we will be guided. We know if you see a, a woman down on the streets mistreating a child, slapping it, yelling at it. We know the psychological, spiritual condition that's going on. We don't have to be told anything. When you see some people doing certain movements, if we have one kind of standard, and we have a kind of education that's gradually shown, that's what, meaning having culture is that people do have some common values that they honor and proceed by, you can begin to see whether movement is inept. Likewise, you can begin to see whether choreography is inept. Now, this is asking, of course, for lots of people to have a pretty good uh, artistic background. And so I strongly suspect that if there were one kind of education done through the writing, the, the dance today needs the writing to get on its feet and find its full power the way the contemporary sculpture and painting did. By the way, you had someone like a Gertrude Stein and a Max Jacob and a Polinaire, people like that writing about it. And that's the kind of thing we still need because that's where you very often get your first, your first introduction when you're in college or, look, if you have bright parents, maybe they finally would have some books around and you, you pick it up or you learn it some way. That kind of writing is needed for us in the dancing today. But I, just in terms of anybody's Look, I, I do remember this. Nobody had to tell me that Martin Gray was good when I saw that. Nobody had to tell me. I know when I sat, we we're going to be in the Indiana Theater, which is a remodeled old guild. It's March 9th, 10th, and 13th that we're here. Anyway, the point is, it's going to be kind of interesting for me to be in that place because that's where I first saw any modern dance. And I can remember the excitement of sitting in that seat and seeing that happen and knowing that I was sitting there. Now, the way that I could react that way, for example, in London that first summer, I saw a Balanchine ballet called Cotillon. Nobody had to tell me that was good. To this day, I know that was one of his finest pieces. And so I think that there is a way whereby 
with one kind of preparation. People can spot this. So I think that sometimes when people look at the new art, I, I, I'm I saying this, people have a Van Gogh complex. And by now you do know that millions of people have gone to the university, right? Now they're in droves. And so they come in and finally hear something. They heard the dear old Van Gogh, he was a very unhappy man. He finally cut off his ear, but now his paintings sell for more than $400,000. So we'd be very, we should be very careful not to miss a genius. And so everybody, as far as I can see, is tempted when they're, they're you know, it's Operation Bootstrap. Well, now, now that we've gone to college and we, 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 we're, we're, we like arts, we're in it, starts to think that everything that comes along is good. And that's where I think that the, the criticism does, does set up a climate of leadership, of discrimination. And so I understand what Alan's talking about, but I do think that there is a native, a native a good sense once somebody's had a certain kind of preparation that starts to tell it. I think we know when something's phony. I wish I wish I were as, as confident. Me too. <laughs> uh, I'm not because I've had experiences and maybe I'm just not that receptive or not that bright. But I have gone to things that did not impress me the first time, tried a little harder the second time, gone back, gone back, gone back before it worked. Sometimes it never worked and then I threw that out as the bathwater for me at any rate. But I think, Eric, that along with the discrimination, we also have to have this kind of discriminating openness, but this thing, because there is, for you it worked with Graham, marvelous. But for some people, and here I think again, the critic can play a big role, there are these irrelevancies in the background mm -hmm. that we've got to help them clear away. Not giving them new rules, but clearing out certain things that don't belong. It, it seems also to me, I see so much dance and so many, many different kinds of dance. And um, if I bring to one kind of performance any set, mental set from another, it usually doesn't work. It doesn't mean that I don't have, I'm always struggling to find out what I think dance is. even struggling to find the most basic definition. It is movement and stillness combined in space and existing in time. Something that basic, I'm happy. Uh, I keep trying, I keep wondering, I keep wondering why this pleases me and why this doesn't please me. Um, but I find myself consumed with a, a kind of curiosity and excitement and maybe I in that sense, I don't want to be an aesthetician uh, in terms of applying standards to something. Since I do think that maybe that art expresses its time, sometimes it leads it, sometimes it, it imposes a very positive thing on it by feeding back to people what they're thinking about through its exploration of what's going on. All right, if this is a decadent time, if it is a troubled time and a sick time, then I think art is going to express this kind of chaos 
this kind of new form that seems unformed, that seems unpleasant or ugly or useless. And that, that is not to say that there aren't charlatans in many art forms, that there aren't people who copy vogues, that there aren't people who are prepared to put down everything old and vaunt everything new. But I think it's so fascinating. It can be horrifying, too, but to observe what is going on and try to see what it comes from. It can't have no meaning. It's got to have a reason. And I think sometimes finding the reason and finding what it expresses can be helpful. That's why I would rather do that than, than find out what standards it doesn't conform to for now, which is... Well, I never mean any set standards. I mean only standards of maturity. Yes, I, I, uh, You're quite right. Any, any other standards, uh, I just mean for human... Uh, after all, theoretically, this art is done for human beings to sit and see and that something enlarges their own conception of their own experience, their own delight. And so that, uh, that when I say standards, no, uh, on the contrary, the, the more the merrier, that's the greatest of the modern dance, that as a, as a general notion that there were a lot of people working. I just, I guess, I guess my only point is that corrupt spiritual ideas cannot be accepted by the people except at their peril. And I think this is true about the painting, about the literature, about the movies, about, about all of them in that sense. And so somewhere, the only reason I brought up the Hitler is that we all do know that circumstances have been right and enough people had stood their guns. I've, I've had two students who were tortured in gas chambers. One student, whose her father was a Protestant minister, and they hid, they, they hid Jewish uh, uh, persecuted people. Well, that's very close to home when these kids tell me these things. There was one girl, she wouldn't look in the mirror. I can't remember her name, what was it? And so the point is that I keep seeing from that little experience of mine that certain people can choose. And so there's one way that I guess I don't think any society can just let anything go. I think somewhere, some choice has got to be made. And so in that sense, right in the dance technique, you can't have dancers saying, Oh, you take one less than a week? That's all I mean by standards. That somebody gets up on the stage and does something, and you take it seriously, where they have not uh, come to a modicum of, uh, uh, what's that kind of first excellence? And, I, and don't you agree that there are a lot of people who are advocating <coughs> things like that? Yeah. Could we have another question? I'd like to ask Mr. Jowell a question. Because we're touching on some of them. Let me see if we can say this in a way that I think it would interest some of us. It is not a crisis of criticism, it is a very characteristic. The reason I particularly address it to you is as you dance and also review, okay, uh, without even turning my head, I can see half a dozen people who write books and who do some reviewing, including myself. And I do not think that we are as good critics as those who are dedicating their lifetime to being literary critics. On the other hand, certainly, let us take the case of a novelist who's written a number of novels. And when he 
the reading and novel for review. And if it is a good novel, I believe it will transcend the particulars of the novel, the, uh, the background that is being discussed, the, uh, the fact that the reviewer doesn't precisely know these characters in the novel, it's just that background doesn't make that much difference. I think the novelist is terribly aware of perhaps, and this is my point, overly aware of all the problems that this poor guy, this poor writer is struggling through. He understands the successes when he sees them, he also understands all the failures, the non sequiturs, so forth, and feels almost too keenly these failures. My point is that I think the softest reviews you can get of a novel, for example, as one of the points, is from another novelist. How do you, do you feel this dilemma to your, yourself, and how do you uh, approach it and solve it? Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think anybody who works in an art himself is acutely aware of the problems and is not hasty in condemning, but I see that as an asset rather than a liability. Uh, the only danger is perhaps becoming too technical, too much in, to write clearly, to keep in mind clearly that the audience for whom you were writing are not in the profession, but outside it. Um, so that's... She does a good job. <laughs> and it, we have some more questions here when we go. Yes. It isn't really a question, but I don't think it's a great pleasure to what Mr. Hawkins is saying about what I think he's talking about is the transcendent spirit, which is really what moves the art. Uh, I'm always reminded of a remark of Somerset Mons, and I found it very helpful in the whole matter of people staying to their standards knowing in their heart really what is right and what is good. And I think it is true that people do know of themselves where they are, so to speak. Somerset Maugham once said about writing that it is hard to write well as it is to be good. And I think perhaps it's as hard to do any, uh, in any art to hold yourself to that standard as it is hard to hold yourself to the standard of being good, but that everybody does know somewhere within themselves where the standard lies and what it is. And particularly uh, uh, lovely to hear it in the uh, area of the dance, which has always seemed to me one of the surely must be one of the most disciplined arts, uh, because you are required with your I mean the <laughs> novelist and somebody and typewriter, no one watches him in the process of producing what he is producing, and you are under constant um, uh, constant focus of an audience. And therefore, what, what applies to the laws of reading a novel, for instance, cannot possibly apply to the laws of, if there are no laws, of reviewing the dance, where the person himself is the, the book, so to speak. It's only a passing remark. I appreciate you what you're saying. I, I would like to add something to that, that I think that, um, having worked in other fields, that one of the very tough things, the particularly tough thing, in reviewing or criticizing dance or whatever, is trying to distinguish the work from the performance. Yeah. Because uh, this it can often be true. I mean, you're not apt to in Swan Lake if you've seen many Swan Lakes, because you finally arrive at the the things they have in common. So you sort of know the general shape of a Swan Lake, though the details may vary wildly. But I think this is 
so far as I know, this is the only art in which this problem exists for the critic to the extent that it does. Yeah. Trying to distinguish the performance from the work. Because such subtle things on the part of the dancer, you may get people who are, you might say, equally proficient athletically, uh, who might make the work seem an entirely different thing through inflection. Yeah. So that you have to be very careful, particularly on seeing a work for the first time, or seeing work that you have never seen before or performed the first time in your own experience, to try to figure out how much of it is in the work and how much of it is in the performance. Now, I would also add that I feel dancers make too much of this uh, sometimes. They say, oh, you know, the work hardly counts at all. It's really the performance that it doesn't exist. I feel that a dance work does exist as a thing. I mean, that it can be transferred, that it can be moved on, it can be passed on. And so therefore, I think the work exists. But try and find it. <laughs> it's very difficult. Now, maybe, maybe some Jean or, or Miss Dowd will, will disagree. Maybe they think it's cut and dried matter. But well, it's an interesting point because of all the aesthetic areas, the area of the performing arts is the one that has had the least attention. Uh, they're very afraid to deal with it because of this peculiar situation where between the work and the audience, you have this intermediary who is the performer. Of course, you get it in music also. But we have a score. You, you have a score. Uh, but there is uh, one year, this is, I guess, three years ago, the American Society for Aesthetics did, devoted a meeting to the performing arts. And I was on the committee to read papers. And they, the ones that came in about the performer all said the duty of the performer is to communicate the work to the audience. The less interpretation, the better. He should be just a neutral medium through which, the, through which the author's intention is conveyed. They question, of course, how do you know the author's intention? Uh, I, I don't want to attempt to answer this in any way except to say that is, I think, one of the most intriguing problems that an aesthetician faces. And the basic one, of course, that makes dance so difficult for the aesthetician is the fact that it is the art that exists in both time and space. Creates many, many problems, wonderful problems, very exciting. I, I would like to go on with this just a minute and, and to say, for example, that, you know, we were talking about it, I, Swan Lake, and I said you get to know sooner or later what's, what the work Swan Lake is, but really, you know, what is it when you get down to it? It's a scenario or a libretto, and it's a musical score, and it's general ideas, but for example, uh, Balanchine, for example, does something he calls the Swan Lake, which was not really just short, it's the second act version, but it's still all, all mixed up so that it's an entirely different thing. So that, in a sense, you can really say, 
that particularly for the old ballets that have been handed down by word of mouth and by God knows what, it would be very hard to say exactly what it is. Do you think? Uh, well, they, some people the say they have a score at Swan Lake. Uh, Tchaikovsky's score. Well, uh, I think Sir Sergeyev notated it in Russia. But that's one version, one version of Swan yes. Lake. And then you also get another very intriguing problem in presenting old works on the stage. It's one thing to play Mozart now. It's another thing to put on a theatrical work of the time. Because there were so many things that strike us differently today in terms of performing techniques. If you ever see an old, old movie on television, you'll know what I mean. They generally seem to be overacting terribly. And the whole question of how do you present a historical work on stage, another one I'm not going to answer. Uh, I'd like to bring another question. There is a pastoral ballet, a three-act ballet, the name of which I should remember, heaven knows, that the Royal Ballet does. It, it was done about the first of early 19th century. It has been revived, and yet it was revived with nobody knowing what the dance was in the first place. Yes, here's a work that is revived, an old work, uh, late 18th century. It's revived, and no one has any idea what the dancing was. Really. I mean, no one could know. What? How it was then? Supposedly, the Bournonville tradition was passed down, though, through the Danes, one generation <laughs> to another, <laughs> say the Danes. We know, we know what the technical vocabulary We know the what time they, they was. could have done. Mm -hmm. But how did Then there's another in intriguing thing there that a, uh, a movement, or a set of movements, for example, that were brilliant virtuosity in 1878 uh, aren't very brilliant to us today. So that if you use exactly the same movement, it will not have the same effect. Uh, I would contrast this with, say, a few people got to review, uh, supposing a manuscript of, um, I don't know who, even Samuel Johnson should be discovered in the basement of the British Museum. And if it were published, you would know that you were getting Samuel Johnson's work, old as they may be. Whereas, say, if a dance critic is presented with a revival of a work a hundred years old, or say 150 to be perfectly safe, he has no idea. Well, what are your standards then? Are your standards yes. authenticity, or are your standards? Or what are you reviewing? <laughs> or what are you criticizing, you see? Are we getting, again, away from the point of, of the, the performing arts? I mean, Samuel Johnson's words are what Samuel Johnson expressed. That was his medium. That was what he created. I, I don't think, uh, I, I, when you say that a dance does exist, I know what you mean, and I half agree with you, but it exists in the sense that maybe one of the platonic ideas exists. Uh, I really think what exists is what is performed. Uh, a song, a song on a piece of note paper is not really, well, it's song A, but it's not the song. It's a, a symbol of, of the song, right? It's, it's signs and directions. But nobody would, would say, I have experienced song, unless they had heard it sung. And I think each dance performance, a dance has to be performed. It doesn't exist 
unless it is performed. Once it is performed, the idea of that dance, the choreography, the directions, the costuming, if there's music, the music, the idea of it, tend to have this kind of existence and it can be applied to another company and reproduced. But I'm not sure that we don't worry often too much about, I can't do it, so I don't worry about it at all. I can't compare the swan like I see today with what the Mariinsky Theater did in Petrograd in such and such a year, so I just don't bother. Maybe it's a cop-out, but uh, I, I, I'm concerned with the swan like that I see at that moment. If I know that a certain enchaînement is missing, I may get all kind of pretentious and write that I noticed that the so-and-so didn't do the 30-second fouette, and next day I know that I've been guilty of a certain kind of show-offness. Uh, but um, I think the main thing is what you see at the time. And it is very hard, as, as we pointed out, to distinguish a bad performance because, as Mr. Hughes says, you may not know it was bad until you see a better performance. You may think something was wrong with the work. Yes. And then you go and you see a, a, a performance and you realize that it was the interpretation of the work. And I think this is something that... You this people is what are we think the work exists. <laughs> yes, right. Because what you, you're, what Michoud was saying, you're, you're very lucky because you are to you're, you're responsible. What, what we get is what you wanted us to get. If you succeeded or failed to reach us, there's no fault but yours. There's no mm, lighting technician. Uh, the worst I can think of would be bad typography or you know s such bad typesetting that it hurt the eyes. Uh, but you're very, you're very fortunate. Uh, yes. That's curious to be true, even though in reading the novel, it is the, it, it is what was reflected back to you because I have read books and reread them ten years later and brought a different person to yes. the book. Yes. 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 You, the change, you, the reader. Yes. Mm -hmm. Times and individuals yeah. change. That's right. Any other questions? Yes? Well, this, when Mr. Hawkins choreographed the work, did he do the work or the performance? The work first. In one sense, it just, uh, Deborah and Alan both were speaking of, it is true that even though a dance is not performed, uh, the very fact that it has been performed, and that, for example, that it's in my mind, for example, if it's my dance, darn it, there is another way that it is. it does exist. You can't say that it, it ain't. It, there is something there. And because, yeah. look, even if, I, even if I think about it, I, I do try, like your old Mozart, to, um, I suppose most of you read the story that I did of how he was able to think of the, I don't know how far he went, but maybe a movement of a sonata or maybe the whole thing, almost to see it in an instantaneous flash. Well, there's a one, one way that I try to do that. I sometimes make little charts, and uh, Lucia Drukoszewski, the composer who works with me, has to do this, so that when, when I have shown her the whole dance, as we did last night up till 2.30 on something, uh, she makes her notations of the, the rhythms. I do write down, uh, not a full lot of notation, but I write down a notation that I learned doing balancing pieces as a pipsqueak. And I, was, I, I start, and I use some of those symbols to this day. This is before a lot of notation even started in America. 
And so there is one way. Those rhythms are set, some of the floor plans, some of the, the shapes of the movement are very ascertainable. Uh, it's the difference between somebody coming up to us after performance and say, well, how much is improvised? And uh, they don't know that we've sweat blood to try to be just there and not there on some of these. So there is one way, and I guess that's the next place that some very fine thing could happen more and more in criticism, that people did see the dance and not always the dancer. Uh, because there is such an entity as a composition. I suspect, Alan, that some of the reason that those old dances can be revised or rehashed over probably is a lot of them weren't good enough to hang on. It's just the same <laughs> way that you said. But I can assure you, there are a few, there are a few dances, dances done in my time, some in ballet, some in modern dance, that you would have to say that that dance is the actual invention of the movement in all the aspects of its placement on the stage, and that always has to be slightly approximate because we are un unfortunate. We were not like the no drums. We had the same size stage all the time. So we could do the same movement for 500 years as they do. But there is something. When a dance is composed well, it is as absolutely specific as any piece that you could write down. Uh, and not all of those, some of the old pieces are still a little bit indications, right, of how to get it going.